Hey ho, tutor minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 30 of our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so pleased to have listeners from all over the world. I know. Our brilliant listeners are everywhere. And we hope wherever you are, you're having a historically tutorific day. And if you're new here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order. We've had such an amazing time researching it and working on it. We can't wait to share the new episode with you. And all our gratitude for taking this journey with us. In our last episode, Constance asked Rutland to make an introduction to George Wyatt. Now we're at Barnard's Inn to meet this grandson of our great poet. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 30, Barnard's Inn, London, in which the face of the poet is seen. Once Sir George Wyatt had recovered from the shock of having females come to call in his room at Barnard's Inn, Constance noted it was the Earl of Rutland, the Queen's ward, well-connected, well-turned-out, well-shod, always with the best jewel in his hat, whose arse Sir George puckered up for. Rutland swatted away the syrupy compliments and forcefully introduced Philomena and the reason for her visit. Sir George's stance became rigid, his eyes locked, and his face clouded. It came into Constance's mind that if Rutland were not with them, George might rip the box from Philomena's hands. Philomena was unperturbed, and Constance, once again, was thankful for her friend's natural composure. Philomena gushed. Sir George, my mother spoke of your father often, and it may be said with a kind of warmth. I never heard her use for another of her guests. What about for my family? demanded Rutland. Constance was unsure whether he was playing along or whether he believed that Philomena's mother really had talked about Wyatt's father in this way. My lord, my mother, of course, regarded your family highly, but the Wyatts, fortunate king to the most highly skilled of all our English men of letters, carved their names in her heart. Sir George's eyes had been narrowed like slits in a fortress wall. They opened a hair's breadth. We cried at the terrors that plagued your family, Sir George, Philomena went on. Why do the valiant suffer? When word of your arrival reached my ears, I knew I must seek you out to return this box to you. From its contents, I am sure it once belonged to the great poet himself. See here, a verse written by your noble grandfather. Are your hands clean? asked George, transformed this time into a historian fearful of the tarnishing of a precious document. Sir, I would not mar so delicate a page. My mother saved this box for many years in hopes of returning it to your family, and now I have the opportunity. Philomena, the poem, held carefully between her thumb and forefinger, passed it to George with gravitas worthy of a saint. George struggled to contain himself. The riddle of the kiss. I know this one. He took up the box and admired the beadwork. See here. We lost almost all of my grandfather's possessions, and mistress of your own will, you bring this to me. You are a soul of worth. A deep tremor took his voice. Constance thought he was the type of lad she had not known before. His emotional cacophony was unnatural. Your father was a man of worth, Philomena said. My father would have followed your father to the grave, Rutland boasted, and Constance determined from the dramatic delivery that he was playing along. Your grandfather, Sir George, is the Earl of Rutland's most beloved poet, Constance added. George's face shone, warmed by flattery. Well, it is not rare to claim Sir Thomas Wyatt as a favourite poet, Rutland piled on. 
All the fellows at Cecil House, at least those who have any discernment, claim Sir Thomas the Petrarch of our island. My grandfather was a great soldier, George said, a great courtier, a great poet, but my own father lacked. A man such as your father found a clarity in battle that he could not find at court, rejoined Rutland. Think of the words your grandfather wrote. In court to serve decked with fresh array of sugared meats, feeling the sweet repast, the life in banquets and sundry kinds of play amid the press of lordly looks to waste, hath with it joined oft times such bitter taste that who so joys such kind of life to hold in prison joys fettered with chains of gold i think of that verse often george reflected as do i said rutland the words are lodged in my mind the earl could not actually think his life at court fettered with chains of gold but constance did not contradict george flattered by his visitor's interest offered to show a treasured object Constance hoped privately it was not a severed head or some other gruesome thing. Into George's chambers they went, and from underneath the bed he pulled a case that contained three parcels. Constance held her breath in brief reverie. Could it be that within all the wrappings the ring of Sir Thomas More lay hidden? Standing by George's lifted hand, Constance saw revealed only a delicate miniature portrait of a woman, her head turned slightly away, brown eyes cast down, and her hair in a white coif. George identified his mother Jane. The second package contained a locket-size image of Sir Thomas Wyatt the Younger. The soldier's face in profile, long nose and dark angular beard against a blue background, seemed to be floating. If the likeness was done before or after Sir Thomas's neck was severed, was impossible to tell. The last bundle, this one the size of a prayer book, concealed a painting with a face so arresting, Constance, Philomena and Rutland all cracked their heads together as they leaned in for a better look. Ladies are hard-headed, it is true, Rutland laughed. But Constance was lost in the likeness of the poet. Red hair, face turned directly to the viewer with kingly blue eyes alight, thick falling beard, and a luxuriously rendered fur hat set on the side of his head. The work itself was masterful, and the subject a human god. From the hand of Master Hans Holbein. Note the resolute eyes, the broad chest, the details. George indicated a jewelled pomander hung around Sir Thomas Wyatt's neck. Sir, you are fortunate to inherit such beautiful pictures. Constance wanted to make a discovery, yet she did not know what she should be asking after. She tried, did you inherit more? George's bile rose again. No! He practically shouted, I have nothing. Everything was taken by Queen Mary and her fork-footed Spanish arsewipe of a husband. My mother left penniless, dependent on dog-shit charity. Stomping and pulling at his cloak, George began to tally every person who had wronged him, their idiocy, their cruelty. Constance, who was conversant with the crown seizing belongings, inquired if there were not some way to procure a record of all that had been taken. George swung wildly and began blessing Queen Elizabeth as the avenging angel of her puppish sister's wrongs. A hard-won letter was in his purse, ready to be delivered on the morrow, addressed to the master of the rolls at Westminster Hall, instructing him to hand over to George inventories of all the confiscated Wyatt lands, houses, and possessions. 
the first step in the return of George's inheritance. Acting out a sudden, urgent need to get back to Bedford House, Constance hustled Philomena and Rutland out the door. She seized the moment as Rutland left to arrange the horses. Jesus! Constance exclaimed. The inventory! Philomena, there is something there, I am sure. Philomena agreed. We need to get to Westminster to see it. We must intercept George Wyatt before he takes it away. Indeed, yet we cannot send an emissary from one of us. And we cannot go ourselves. Who do we dare ask to help us? Would Blackjack do it? He is well connected and could pretend to be on Master George Wyatt's business. Philomena shook her head. A thousand no's would be less than half his answer to such a question. He will do nothing if he does not know the true reason. I'm afraid he suspects you too much, Constance. But your friend... They both turned to look at the approaching Earl of Rutland. Seeing their expressions, he smiled. I see something has passed between you ladies to make me seem worthy of even greater appreciation. George White does not have his grandfather's smooth-talking personality. No, that is true. But, you know, George had such a different upbringing than Sir Thomas did. Sir Thomas was bred for the court, and he spent most of his life there. His father was a courtier to Henry VII, and, you know, Thomas joined Henry VIII's service as Sewer Extraordinary when he was only 12. Sewer Extraordinary? <laughs> Sewer indicate the person who took around the water for the diners to wash their hands? I think so, and I'm guessing that extraordinary meant that you only served the king. Oh, you were the king's main hand-washing guy. <laughs> I, I know, it seems odd to us. Like, how could that be an honor? But all these positions, having any proximity to the monarch, was a privilege that high-ranking people fought to the death for. Ladies-in-waiting like Constance would, as we've said, have attended the queen at table while she was dressing, while she was washing... Being able to have direct contact with Elizabeth was a way to obtain her notice and hopefully her favor. Thinking about, quote, you know, menial jobs that were done by high ups, Sir Henry Norris always comes to my mind. Blackjack's grandfather. Right. And he was a groom of the stool to Henry mm. VIII. I mean, in other words, he attended Henry when he was on his close stool, meaning the can. <laughs> <laughs> what better time for a few private words to the king about promoting your family than when he is pooping? <laughs> I mean, sure, he would have the king's undivided attention. Well, sort of. Being groom of the stool was one of the highest positions at court. Though, I mean, of course, we find the whole idea of it gross, like having someone in there with you, you know? But it was it was super intimate. You knew... You knew things about the king that probably no one else knew. I mean, maybe too intimate? I know, but anything about the king's body was supposed to be almost sacred. Yeah. And the groom of the stool was also involved in the king's well-being. 16th century doctors used a person's extractions mm -hmm. as a way of making a diagnosis. Like when you put your doggies poo in a bag for the No, that's true. That's true. Or you, you know, give a urine analysis. We still do that. And I mean, of course, because of that, the groom of the stool would have had more knowledge than anyone else about the state of the king's health. And that was top secret national security information. It's true. But being groom of the stool did not save Sir Henry Norris from execution as one of Anne Boleyn's supposed lovers. 
Well, Henry always liked to kill those closest to him. I'm hating on Henry again. (laughs) (laughs) But Queen Elizabeth, a much more private person, Mm -hmm. she did not use the name groom. In her case, it would be Lady of the Stool. In her household, the job of keeping her company when she was on the close stool fell to the first lady of the bedchamber, who was Cat Ashby until her death in 1565. And then I think the title went to Catherine Carey. Right. I don't think Elizabeth liked the term lady of the stool. Yes. Yeah. Lady of, first lady of the bedchamber was a little more not quite so obvious. Catherine was the next who came after Cat Ashby, and I think she was Elizabeth's cousin. So, you know, families promote each other in this time period. But in the case of the Wyatts, their ascendancy came to this abrupt end with the execution of Sir Thomas Wyatt the Younger. And Sir George Wyatt, whose grandfather was one of Henry VIII's most trusted courtiers, did not grow up Mm -hmm. in court or go to Cambridge for his education or travel on the king's business to great European courts as Sir Thomas did. George was the son of an executed traitor who, as a child, lost his title and his inheritance, who had to leave the castle where he was born with his widowed mother and all of his siblings. Yeah, and now, instead of being able to be a country gentleman, the position he was born to, he has to come to London and work his butt off as a student at the Inns of Chancery so he can make a living. No wonder he's emotional. No, and no wonder he's insecure around Rutland. In the 16th century, you know, it wasn't a time when making it on your own having to work really hard and make your own money was valued over being a member of the landed gentry born into wealth. It's not like it is now. I mean, having to learn a trade was a huge step down the social ladder. And people looked down on you if you had to do that. Yes, Rutland studies his Latin and Greek to improve himself for the pure love of knowledge not for the degrading motive of making money. Ooh, yucky. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunate George has lost this privilege, the privilege of his birth, because his father made a decision to lead a rebellion that failed, which is a pretty big decision. It is a pretty big decision, and it went pretty spectacularly badly, (laughs) too. But George honors his poet grandfather's memory, you know, over his traitor's fathers, and Philomena understands That's the way to ingratiate herself with George, by pressing her love of Thomas Wyatt's poetry and these objects she has and all that stuff, you know? All that flattery strokes George's ego, and he shares his family treasures, these three precious images, one of his mother, one of his father, and one of his grandfather. And they would have been precious in every sense, both special to him but also unbelievably expensive, because it was unbelievably expensive to have a likeness done. There's an amazing, gorgeous drawing of Sir Thomas Wyatt the Elder by the German artist Hans Holbein. And we decided this drawing was a study for the portrait we imagined George having. And there may well have been a portrait of this that was inspired by this drawing, because artists at the time usually made a few drawings of a sitter before starting a portrait. Paint was expensive and really perishable. The artist or their assistant, they had to grind each pigment by hand and then mix it with the right amount of oil, and it needed to be used almost immediately. It wasn't until the 1840s that you could buy a tube of paint with a nifty screw cap (laughs) on the top that was pre-mixed and could be stored for a long time. 
the 19th century Impressionists were able to make, quote, impressions directly from life outdoors and quickly without making a lot of studies beforehand because oil paint was suddenly easily portable and less prone to drying out. And it was a new technology, the metal tube and the screw cap that inspired this revolution in painting. Yes, it wasn't because the Impressionists were the first ones that thought, oh, let's go outside and paint and do it quickly. It was because they had this they had these technologies. I mean, so much of inspiration in art comes from some new ability, you know? And in in the 16th century, they didn't have those those portable paints and they coveted they coveted this pigment. They wouldn't start a painting until they had a really good idea of the image they wanted. So these drawings were a great way to study different angles and details of the sitter's face before using up this, you know, super expensive pigment. And I have to say personally, I love drawings. I, I, I almost like them. I mean, I hesitate to say that because there's so many great portraits, but there's something about a drawing about the immediacy of it. I just love them. And their ability to draw was so, so beautiful. Good, yeah. I mean, it's they're amazing. And we still have wonderful drawings that Hans Holden made of the Tudor courtiers, not just the king. Lord Cobham, Lady Guildford, John Moore, Sir Thomas More's son, Wyatt, Jane Boleyn, Mary Zouche, which I love that one. I, do, I love that one, too. It's, it's beautiful. so beautiful. So many wonderful images of people who inhabited the Tudor court. Not to mention the drawings he made for jewelry designs, actually even details on armor, details on furniture. I mean, having really detailed drawings, it just allowed an artist to refer to the study rather than to have a super important person stand for hours and hours to have their likeness painted. I mean, can you imagine that Henry was really going to stand there for <laughs> the 10 hours it took you to make this painting? There are just so many incredible Holbein drawings that survive, even though, in fact, some of the actual paintings that may have come from those drawings, they, they've been lost. Anyone who was anyone at Henry's court wanted to be painted by Holbein. And it's impossible to imagine that Henry VIII's court without thinking of Holbein's yeah, work. Yeah, it is. It's the first thing that comes to your yes, mind. Yes, absolutely. Hilary Mantel, who wrote the Wolf Hall trilogy, said that Holbein was her main inspiration. She said it was Holbein who had given the world the image of Henry that everyone knows. And the only images of Cromwell we have he peoples the early Tudor court for us. Yeah, I think that's really true. And Holbein's father was also an artist, you know, as often happened in this period, the father passed on his trade. And Holbein made his mark as a portrait painter with this incredibly important portrait of Erasmus, who we talk about <laughs> a lot, that, that Holbein made in 1523. Yeah, so Holbein and Erasmus, the humanist, formed a good relationship. Holbein himself was a humanist and supported the religious reform, and his art moved away from the Gothic religious art of the 15th century, and Erasmus encouraged Holbein to look for work in England and recommended the artist to his friend, Sir Thomas More. Right, so Holbein visited England in 1526, More promoted him, and voila, in 1532, Holbein, with the patronage of Anne Boleyn, who Actually, I think we underestimate how important she was in the arts in this period. And Thomas Cromwell, who was also super important, was a patron of his. And he Holbein came to live permanently at 
court as the king's painter. It makes me sad to think of the portraits Holbein must have made of Anne that we don't have anymore. I know. She was his patron. He must have painted her, and probably more than once. Yes. I'm guessing Henry had those portraits destroyed after Anne's execution, because apparently he did try to destroy everything of hers and any likeness that was around. It's such a loss. I know. Wouldn't it be great to have a likeness of Anne by Holbein, as detailed as his portrait of Jane Seymour or Anne of Cleves? Yes, but we do have the fantastic drawing that Holbein did of Sir Thomas Wyatt. So we know he was a very handsome guy. Oh, yes, he was a hottie. We'll post that drawing on our Facebook page. So in our story, George has these two other miniatures of his parents, Sir Thomas the Younger and Jane Waite. Some historians have called miniatures the selfies of the 16th century because they're very focused on one individual presented in the way that they want to be seen. Mm -hmm. Miniatures, because of the size and the simplicity of the background overall, they're more immediate than a full portraiture, just like a selfie. They're more intimate, right? Because they're, they're like two inches in size. I mean, sometimes even smaller than that. And they're extremely portable and easy to exchange. But my gosh, I mean, it was so much harder to paint a miniature than to snap a selfie. I mean, I understand what historians are saying that when they say that, but the skill involved is nothing like. Absolutely true. And also, it was very expensive. Right. So the average person could never have a miniature of themselves made. Nicholas Hilliard is the most famous artist of the Tudor miniatures, but he was not even born until 1547. Mm-hmm. And miniatures were popular at the Tudor court from the 1520s onwards. And the artist who made miniatures during the reign of all four Tudor monarchs, Henry, Edward, Mary, and Elizabeth, was Lavena Tierlink. She was born in Bruges in the 1510s. She was one of five daughters of a well-known Netherlandish artist, Simon Benning, and her grandfather was also an artist. So fortunately for Lavena, Simon didn't have a son. Yes. (laughs) So he trained her. And in 1545, she married George Turlink. Not much is known about him, whether he himself was an artist or not, but they went to England soon after their marriage, and by 1546, she was court painter to Henry VIII. That's pretty impressive. Uh, Absolutely. It took Holbein six years from his first visit to England to become court painter. And Lavina got the job right away. And in fact, I've read that she was brought there to be court painter. Yes. So there's not much documentation about why she went to England in the first place. Holbein died in 1543. So there, of course, was a vacancy at the court. Was she recommended for the job? And, you know, if so, by whom? There's some speculation that her father, Simon, who, as we said, was a very well-known artist, was invited to take Holbein's job, and he suggested her to go in his place. Well, that sounds plausible because Simon was established. He had a family in Flanders. He might not have wanted to sort of uproot everything and go to England, but Lavina was younger and at that time had no children. So I wonder if she married George Tierlink with the intention of going to England. If she was born in the 1510s, she was in her 30s by the time she was married, which 
you know, was on the later side. I mean, it's true. Maybe she felt she needed to be married to make such a journey safely and to be accepted at the Tudor court. I mean, as we've said, unmarried women were, you know, kind of mistrusted in general. I I don't think they would hire a single woman to take that position at court. It makes me think the offer came for her to go to England, and she said, hey... (laughs) George, (laughs) you've been asking me to marry you for a few years. Now, guess what? I will, but we have to move to England. (laughs) Maybe. Because they got married and they left immediately, almost (laughs) after the wedding, you know? So maybe she was like, George, come over here. (laughs) And it worked out. Henry accepted her for the job and he actually paid her more than he paid Holbein. And she and Master Tierlink settled down in London. And she held that job for the next 30 years. 30 years. Yeah. Doing portraits, miniatures, illuminations for books, everything for three decades at the Tudor court. And she actually probably trained Nicholas Hillard. And she survived all the upheavals. And four monarchs between Henry's death in 1547 and Elizabeth taking the throne in 1558. And if you include Lady Jane Grey. And good old Lavina just kept working away. No, amazing. I mean, the unfortunate thing is that she didn't sign her work. So attributions to her are hard. And there's also a lot of speculation that when there was a huge fire in Whitehall in in the 1600s, a lot of her work was destroyed. And I'm guessing that might be true for Holbein's work, too. Oh, yes. On the Art History website, there's a quote. Some historians suspect that Turlink has been overlooked because many 20th century experts preferred to focus on the artists Hans Holbein and Nicholas Hilliard. Their attributions are less tenuous and their skill more pronounced. No, it's so <laughs> How do you know if she didn't sign her work and most of it was destroyed? No, it's so strange that it says their skill was more pronounced since we don't know what her skill was. And we don't have any paintings that are for sure hers. And she was there for 30 years. You would think if she was like not great, they would have replaced her. I mean, how did she stay? It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like... She showed Henry her work, and he was like, no, you better hightail it back to Bruges. This was a court where they could have other people come if, if she wasn't good. It's, it's just such a weird pronouncement. She was brought there to replace Holbein, and, and no one said her work didn't stack up to his. You're, and, and they paid her more. And they paid her more. And Holbein, that's an extremely high level. His yeah, No, yeah. I mean, he was yeah, spectacular. spectacular. And it's... If she wasn't talented, why would they have kept her? And as you said, paid her more and kept her and kept her and kept her. Right. Through all these other... I mean, Mary could have gotten the painter from Spain, presumably. Mary the first, right? I yes. Mean, but she didn't. It's not as if she wasn't retained after the death of Henry VIII. She was employed by Mary and then she was kept on by Elizabeth. And there are letters that say she was considered much more than an artisan. Yeah, I mean, we can only speculate on what all that means, but it seems to me there's no reason to think she wasn't really an exceptional painter. That seems a huge jump, doesn't it? I I completely agree. And there were so many artists in this time period. Mm -hmm. From all over Europe. Yeah, Yeah. if she wasn't accepted, I think they would have, I mean... And there was certainly plenty of opportunities with the monarch dying. and Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. She must have, I mean, I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense. No, and she stayed 
she stayed as the court painter until her death. Right. In in 1576. And then Nicholas Hillard took over. It wasn't, he didn't, you know, get in there and then usurp her. I mean, he, she stayed until her death. So it, it, it's a, it doesn't make any sense. We imagine that Lavina made these two miniatures of Thomas the Younger and Jane that are so precious to their son, George Wyatt, and so impress Constance and Philomena when they look at them. And these are some of the only things that he has from his inheritance. Now there is hope for him with this inventory of the goods Mary I claimed, and he hopes Elizabeth will give some of the things he considers his back to him. Yes, but Philomena and Constance have their own plan to get to that inventory before George so they can look for a clue to the relic. Yes, and next time we'll see the crazy lengths they go to (laughs) to get that inventory. So leave us a comment on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page. We love hearing from our listeners. We really appreciate your support. So join us next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk.